The church is custom in Lent to put the temptation of Christ in the first week and also the temptation of Adam and Eve. And so you see them in contradistinction. You see Adam and Eve fail and you see Christ overcome. And so the church is sort of implicitly suggesting don't do what Adam and Eve did, do what Christ did. And so it's worth reflecting upon the, the reading from Genesis and to sort of see what happened. Things all often get lost in Genesis because of sort of its Hebrew, Hebrew poetic way of expressing things. So it begins by saying that the Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground. What it's expressing is the fact that humans are material. We are part of the material world. In fact, in the creation narrative, you see that humans are sort of the pinnacle of the material world. And the reason for that is because of the next line. It says, and God blew into his nostrils the breath of life. It's expressing that humans are not merely material. They also have sort of an immaterial element. And the blowing into the nostrils signifies God blowing the Holy Spirit into the first humans into Adam and Eve and sharing through the Holy Spirit his own divine life. That is ultimately the reason why God created humans. He wanted to share his life with others and so he creates man and then he blows into his nostrils the Holy Spirit to give them life. Then it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. The Garden of Eden is always referred to as the Lord's Garden. It is the Lord's, it is not ours. And yet the Lord places Adam and Eve in that garden. And the reason for that is because God desires to dwell among humans. You see in Genesis that God is described as walking in the garden. He's there, he is present. And so he places Adam and Eve there so that he may not only share his life with them, but he may dwell with them, to be with them. That is God's desire all through sacred scripture. Even after our first sin, when they are cast out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, God still desires to dwell among humans. And so first he makes covenants with Abraham and with Noah. But then, through Moses, he builds his tabernacle. He, through the Ark of the Covenant, his footstool, he begins to once again dwell among humans. This takes sort of its height in Jesus Christ, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Truly then God dwelt among man and conversed with them, for he took his delight in being among humans. And even after our Lord's ascension, he still desires to be among us. That is why he instituted the most holy Eucharist, so that he may dwell among us. That is why we have adoration chapels, so that even now the Lord may dwell among us and we may visit him and worship him and cast all of our cares upon him. But Satan wanted to distort this good. Satan wanted to separate humanity from God. Satan wanted to introduce death into the world. And so we see him incarnate as a serpent going to test Adam and Eve. And he begins by saying, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? And notice Satan's doing two things. And Satan has no creative power. So the same way he tempted Adam and Eve is the same way he tempts us. And you will notice in your own life 
that Satan gets us again and again and again with the same temptations in the same manner. So we have to learn sort of the ways of our enemies so that we may overcome him. And so the first thing he does is he sends just a subtle lie in there. He says, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees? That, of course, is false. God only told them not to eat of two of the trees. Everything else was theirs. So Satan's already distorting. But notice also what Satan is doing. He is introducing, he is suggesting this element of doubt. Because he knows that if he can get them to doubt just a little bit, he now has a crease through which he may enter. So he places this doubt in their hearts. Because ultimately every sin stems from some degree of lack of faith. So what Satan does to us is he tempts us to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt that God cares to, for us, to doubt that God is all-powerful, to doubt that divine providence directs and guides our life and that even the hairs of our head are counted. And then after we sin, Satan gets us to doubt that God can forgive our sins. But he just begins with sowing seeds of doubt. And at first, Eve is strong. She says, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. And you see the wisdom of God. God knows that when you get in the near occasion of sin, you are in danger. And so God commanded them not only not to eat it, but he says, don't even touch it. Because once you touch it, you are in danger. On the other hand, if you never touch the fruit, you'll never eat it. Spiritual writers call this the near occasion of sin. There are those things that are not sinful in themselves, but they begin that snowball, that path towards sin. It's sort of like if you stick your head in the mouth of an alligator, at some point it's going to bite you. So don't do that. Avoid the danger altogether. Avoid those occasions of sin, and then you will avoid sin as well. And then Satan continues, he says, no, you, you certainly will not die. And now he went from a suggestion of doubt and a small sort of distortion to an outright lie. When he says, you will certainly not die because it is through sin that death in, entered the world. Then he says, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's. And there is the temptation to be like God's. It's a temptation towards pride. It's a temptation to reach for things which are above us. And the tragic irony, whenever you read Genesis, is God was actually going to make Adam and Eve like gods. He wanted to share his own life with them. He wanted to make them participants and partakers of the divine nature, but he was going to do it. And if Adam and Eve would have let God divinize them, he would have, but instead they grasped. They tried to make themselves God, and so they fell. And then we see Eve, the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes and desirable to wisdom. You see the wheels turning in her head. She's now cast her eyes upon the fruit. She will reach out and touch it. And then she will take of it and eat and fall. It's sort of like when a little kid is pondering about doing something mischievous. You can see him get closer and closer and closer to the action. And then he commits the action. The same thing those occasions of sin. And then it says that they re their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. That's the Hebrew, the Genesis way of expressing that now innocence was lost. Now death was going to enter the world and chaos was going to reign. And so 
to overcome Satan, we must look at what our Lord Jesus Christ did. Instead of going into a garden, humans fell in the comfort of a garden, the convenience of a garden. Our Lord goes out into the desert and he fasts. And then when Satan approaches him, he says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. And our Lord's response is a complete trust in the goodness and the mercy of God. One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. He ultimately entrusts himself to God. And in this way, he overcomes Satan and eventually casts him away. And so we have to do the same thing because Satan tempts us the same way. He tempts us to doubt the divine goodness. He tempts us to look at the evil of the world and say, God is powerless. He tempts us to look at the struggles that we face and say, God doesn't actually care about you. He tempts us to look at our sinfulness and say, God cannot forgive that. He throws suggestions at us, causes us to doubt. When on the contrary, if you understood how much God loved you, if you understood how much God cared for you and desired your salvation, if you understood how much God at this very moment desires to pour grace out upon you, you would never sin. God ultimately wants to give you good things more than you could ever desire them. And so we have to resist those temptations of Satan. We have to recognize areas where we are vulnerable. We have to recognize times when we are vulnerable. And we have to recognize that those are occasions of sin and Satan's gonna try and sow doubt into our minds and use those occasions to lead us into sin. And we resist him by entrusting ourselves to God, to his goodness, to his mercy, to his love, and that will ultimately overcome Satan. Finally, I would just like to add my own encouragement for you to sign up for a holy hour in our Adoration Chapel. I know the set is back there and you can take an hour. When Father Luke Strand became the vice rector of the seminary, when I started, he was insistent, it was pretty much a non-negotiable for a seminarian that he pray a daily holy hour. And so I don't think it's a surprise that in my time, when the seminarians began to pray daily holy hours, that the seminary went from like 25 guys to now I think it has 80 guys. And I know he encouraged me when I was thinking about leaving seminary and I was in dark times, he would always remind me to renew my devotion to the daily holy hour. When I was named temporary administrator, I got really bad about praying my holy hour because I'm busy and my schedule's crazy and I don't know what I'm doing half the time. So I have not been praying my holy hour. So one of my Lenten uh, renewals, resolutions, was to go back to praying my daily holy hour. So I would encourage you, if you can't do daily, at least pray one weekly, pray one monthly. You'll hear a lot of people will tell you what the church needs in the world and what the church needs in its liturgies and in its priests. What I think the church needs ultimately is people who know how to sit in front of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and know how to receive from him and know how to adore him. So if you want to see a renewal in your church, take a holy hour. If you want to see a renewal in your parish, take a holy hour. If you want to be a better spouse, take a holy hour. If you want to be a better mother and father, take a holy hour. That's what ultimately the church needs. That's what your kids need. That's what I need. That's what your seminarians need. That's what each one of you need. So find a way to pray a holy hour. At least start with once a month. I remember what the patron of my seminary, St. Francis de Sales, said. He says, Everybody should pray for an hour every day. Unless you are busy, then you should pray for two hours. <laughs>